Welcome to Norse Mythology, the unofficial guide. It's unofficial because I'm neither a credentialed academic nor a time-traveling medieval Norse pagan, but I deal with this material directly from the sources, interpreted through the lens of the experts and their opinions. If you're looking for depth and detail in a simple and accessible way, then you're in the right place. She knows that Heimdall's hearing is hidden under the bright-grown sacred tree. She sees, flowing down, the loam-filled flood from Father of the Slain's pledge. Do you want to know more? And what? Alone she sat outside when the old man came, the terrible one of the Asir, and he looked in her eyes. Why do you question me? Why do you test me? I know all about it, Odin, where you hid your eye in Mimir's famous well. Mimir drinks mead every morning from Father of the Slain's pledge. Do you want to know more? And what? Like much of what is written in Voluspa, these stanzas are cryptic, and are possibly meant to be cryptic. So figuring out what they mean requires us to make some decisions about how much we want to trust our favorite 13th century Christian scholar, Snorri Sturluson. I've mentioned before that it's clear Snorri had access to some sources that no longer survive. And it's also clear that he embellished the material he had, and even made some mistakes every once in a while. In the prose Edda, Snorri tells us that the giant ash tree at the center of the world, Yggdrasil, has three roots that extend out across the world, marking the realms of one, the gods, two, the Hrimthorsar, or so-called frost giants, and three, the cold primordial region of Niflheim. And as a side note, the poem Grimnismal actually has that first root marking the realm of mankind. But regardless, under the root that extends toward the lands of the Hrimthorsar, Snorri tells us, is the famous well called Mimisbrunner, which literally means Mimir's well. Snorri doesn't actually tell us that the well is located within the realm of the Hrimthorsar, or even exactly how far from the trunk of Yggdrasil the well is, just that it's, quote, under this particular root. In the last episode, we talked about the word Mimameder, which is another name for Yggdrasil, the world tree and also the phrase Hod Mimis Holt that seems to be a similar reference to the tree, or perhaps to a grove that the tree stands in. Given that the name Mimir is associated with both this tree and this well, it could be that Mimis Brunner is actually very near the trunk of Yggdrasil. We also talked before about being cautious in how we interpret the word under. In this case, Mimir's well is a well, and there are various ways you can imagine a well that do allow it to be underneath a tree root. A narrow hole dug deep in the ground, for example, that you access by lowering down a bucket on a rope. But a Brunner can also be thought of as a spring. There was a popular video game recently that depicted Mimus Brunner as something like a spring inside a cave underground. I'm personally a little skeptical about the cave part, but it isn't provably wrong. Our sources usually don't give us a lot of descriptive detail along those lines. But there's another well we'll get to shortly that clearly seems to be more like a spring than some man-made hole in the ground. In any case, Snorri tells us that Mimisbrunner is a special well because it contains wisdom and intelligence. It's owned by a man named Mimir, who is likewise full of wisdom and intelligence, presumably because he gets to drink from his own well whenever he wants. His name, as far as we can tell, looks like it might be related to the English word memory, and the words that are its likely predecessors in older languages have connotations of thinking, reflecting, remembering, and that sort of thing. So it all fits together pretty well. Zemek translates Mimir as the rememberer, or the wise one. The poem Voluspa mentions that Mimir has some number of sons, 
but we know absolutely nothing about them. A little later in the story, Mimir ends up beheaded, and Odin will actually salvage the disembodied head by magically enchanting it so that it can continue to offer him counsel whenever he needs it. This doesn't mean that Odin keeps this head on him at all times, of course, asking for counsel about every little thing. Snorri explains in section 51 of Gilveginning that Odin will actually journey to the well to consult what is presumably Mimir's head as the cataclysmic events of Ragnarok are beginning to unfold. It also doesn't mean that the head is necessarily always alive. For all we know, it could be dead most of the time, only spitting out zombie-like answers whenever Odin performs some spell and asks it a question. But for as long as Mimir was alive, it appears he didn't offer drinks from his wisdom well for free. Snorri explains that at some point, Odin came to Mimir and requested a drink from the well, but was not allowed to have one until he offered one of his own eyes as payment, which he did and Odin has been consistently described as one-eyed in every source that discusses his appearance ever since. Hence the seeress says in Voluspa, I know all about it, Odin, where you hid your eye in Mimir's famous well. Mimir drinks mead every morning from Father of the Slain's pledge. Snorri also tells us a couple of other interesting things about Mimir. In a different book he wrote called Ynglingasaga, he names Mimir as one of the Asir, the clan of supernatural beings the Norse regarded as gods. Although, Ynglingasaga is not really a book on mythology, but a book that treats mythological characters as though they were historical human beings, which is a relatively common medieval thing to do. But in the prose edda, Snorri lists Mimir as a member of the Jotnar. So which is it? Well, we should keep in mind that the Jotnar and the Asir are not actually different species or even different races as we would think of them today. See episode one for more on that. And there's a caveat that not all Jotnar are actually villains in the sources. In my own opinion, I think some of the poetic phrases that place Mimir in the Jotnar camp are pretty compelling, and I also think the way he behaves toward Odin, specifically forcing him to pay for access to the well, feels pretty characteristic of the Jotnar, who are often trying to make trades and bargains with the Asir. But I say that in light of the fact that, like I mentioned pretty often, there is no actual canon of Norse paganism. And in reality, it would have been rife with variation and even some conflicting ideas. Snorri also tells us that Mimir drinks from his well using a drinking horn called Gjallarhorn. However, Larrington and others have noted that this is probably a mistake, based on a misinterpretation of stanza 28 of Voluspa, which I read at the beginning of this episode. Larrington translates the stanza to read, quote, she knows that Heimdall's hearing is hidden under the bright-grown sacred tree. She sees flowing down the loam-filled flood from Father of the Slain's Pledge, end quote. The reference to Father of the Slain's Pledge here is a reference to the eye Odin traded for a drink from the well. So we're all pretty sure the stanza is talking about Mimisbrunner. But the Old Norse phrase that Larrington translates as Heimdall's hearing is Heimdallarhjöð, where the word hjöð can mean either hearing or it can mean a sound. Voluspa tells us that as the cataclysmic events of Ragnarok begin, a god named Heimdallr will sound the alert by blowing on a horn called Gjallarhorn. So it looks like Snorri probably interpreted Voluspa as saying that Heimdallr's sound, which would poetically be his horn, is hidden in the well. And then, hey, if there's a horn there, surely Mimir must be using it for drinking. Unfortunately for Snorri, there are actually zero cases in all of Old Icelandic literature that refer to a horn with the word hjöð. So it doesn't seem like this was a connection the average person would have made. 
If what's really hidden in Mimir's well is instead Heimdallr's hearing, then, as Larrington notes, just as Odin once sacrificed an eye for a drink from the well, it looks a lot like Heimdallr may have once sacrificed an ear for a drink from the well as well. This interpretation provides us with a repeated theme, which, to me, lends it a little bit of credence. It also leaves us with at least three gods who have sacrificed parts of their body for various reasons, which is kind of a disturbing trend. Those three being Odin, Heimdallr, and Tyr, who gives up his hand in a story we'll talk about in a future episode. For now, let's stay on the topic of wells, because there's another well situated near the base of the world tree, called Urdarbrunner, which means fate's well, or well of fate. Snorri is more explicit about describing this well in terms that place it in very close proximity to the tree, and this is something we also see in Voluspa. Stanza 19 has the seerist describing Yggdrasil as a tall tree drenched in white mud whose branches are the source for the dews that fall in the valleys, and it ends by saying Yggdrasil stands forever green over Urther's well. This cosmological pairing seems to have been an important thing to the Norse people, who had a propensity to lay out the area around many of their farms and villages and forts and temples in a circular shape with a tree next to a well right in the very center. Unlike Mimisbrunner, which seems to contain drinkable wisdom in the well, you can't actually drink fate from Urdabrunner. Instead, as Voluspa 20 and 21 tell us in my own translation, quote, From there come maidens, much knowing, three from out of that hall that stands under the tree. One is called Urdur, another Verdandi, schooled the third. They carved on a wooden board. They laid down laws. They chose lives for the children of ages, the fates of men, end quote. Now, even though this is my own translation, and even though I've adhered as closely to the meaning of the original text as possible, I've still misled you. Not maliciously, of course, but the reason why you've been misled is because I've only given you a translation of this stanza as it was written in a single manuscript called Hauksbok. But we actually have more than one source for Voluspa, and they're not exactly the same. Another manuscript containing this poem is called the Codex Regius, and in that version, the stanza is slightly different. Quote, from there come maidens, much knowing, three from out of that sea that stands under the tree. One is called Urdur, another Verdandi, schooled the third. They carved on a wooden board, they laid down laws, they chose lives for the children of ages, they pronounced fate. End quote. So in Hauksbok, the maidens come from the hall under the tree, and in Regius, they come directly from what the poem calls a sea, and which Larrington translates as lake, probably assuming the word sea to have been chosen for alliteration and not for its literal meaning, which is often a safe bet. The Hauksbok version is a little more than half a century younger than Regius, and it contains a few other things that make us tend toward thinking Regius might be a better base for the material. But pretty much all the sources point to both a well, possibly a spring, and a hall situated beneath Yggdrasil. So it's hard to say for sure whether these maidens come directly up out of the water or whether they actually live in the hall. In one part of the prose edda, Gilvaginning, Snorri chooses to canonize the idea that these maidens live in the hall. However, in another part of the same book, called Skald Skapermol, he quotes a stanza from a Viking Age poem by Kormakr Ogmundarsson that says, in my own translation, with Kenning's decrypted, quote, The battle swelled as the warrior who waged war advanced with the screaming sword. Urther came out of the well, end quote. 
So in this case, it looks more like at least one of these maidens actually does come up out of the well. So, well or hall, take your pick. Urther, like the other two maidens Verdandi and Skuld, are beings that our sources call Norns. And if you're a fan of Greek mythology at all, you will already be drawing parallels between the Norns and the three Greek fates, which is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Both traditions are rooted in older Indo-European religion, which is the reason for a lot of similarities we find between certain mythologies from different parts of the world. The Norse and Greek traditions do share a common mythological ancestry. But because we're dealing with concepts that have once again been co-opted and reimagined by popular media, we should take a second to call out an important detail. The Norns are maidens, meriar in Old Norse, which has the same sense of female youthfulness and sometimes even virginity that we get from the English word maidens. They're not creepy old crones skulking around in black shrouds. There are also more than three Norns in total. The poem Favnismal in the Poetic Edda explains that some Norns are members of the Asir clan, some are elves, and some are dwarves, implying that, at least in some traditions, there could have been an enormous number of these fate-decreeing women. But as far as we can tell, they are indeed always women. Snorri expands on this idea by explaining that Norns visit everyone when they are born to shape their fates. When someone has a good life, it's because their fate was shaped by a good Norn of noble parentage. And when someone is the victim of misfortune, it's because evil Norns are at fault. The idea of Norns visiting people at the time of their birth also seems pretty well confirmed by the poem Helgakvida Hundingsbana 1, where Norns appear at the home of our hero Helgi on the night of his birth and decree that he will become famous as the best of princes. Then they weave some golden thread described as the strand of fate, and they attach it from the ground to the sky and use it to mark out a huge area of territory from east to north to west, within which Helgi would one day possess all the land. In fact, John Lindau notes that there is an old tradition in Norway and the Faroe Islands of preparing a special meal called Nornagraut, meaning Norn's porridge, in connection with childbirth, and that some scholars believe this is derived from a pre-Christian tradition of essentially bribing the Norns to bestow a good fate upon a newborn child. Of course, we should always be careful when interpreting ancient religion through the lens of modern folklore, even if it does seem rooted in something old. If there are no attestations of a practice from before any given year, it's pretty hard to be confident that the practice actually existed much farther back in time than that year. Plus, major events such as, oh, I don't know, mass religious conversion, for example, have a tendency to cause changes in common folklore. For a little more evidence that Urdabrunner was thought of as something like a spring or a lake, Snorri tells us that it is said that every day the three Norns who live by the well, who he also tells us are sisters, by the way, take water and mud from the area around the well and pour it over the world tree to prevent rot and decay. He then goes on to claim that the water from the well is so holy that anything that comes into it turns as white as the membrane inside an eggshell. Unfortunately, the only source he points to for this claim is that stanza in Voluspa that describes Yggdrasil as having white mud on it, which personally feels kind of unconvincing. The names of these three Norns are interesting, though, and have been the subject of a lot of scholarly debate. Urther has enough cognates in other languages that it has a reconstructable form in Proto-Germanic, something like Wurdis, and has held the express general meaning of fate or destiny for a very long time. 
But this comes from an even older root in Proto-Indo-European that meant something like turn or wind, possibly pointing to an ancient association between fate and thread weaving. Interestingly, that same Proto-Indo-European root also evolved into the name for the second Norn, Verdandi. What's interesting about this is that the word Verdandi literally means becoming in Old Norse. So why would her name be becoming? Well, the name for the third Norn, Skuld, who Snorri refers to as the youngest sister of the three, can mean either should, as in I should do something, or debt. Scholars have noticed that the name Verdandi, or becoming, seems to refer to something happening right now, and Skuld seems to refer to things marked for completion in the future. And this has caused them to theorize that Urdur might have been thought of as something like a noun form of the past tense verb Urdu, which means became, and would therefore associate the names of each Norn with past, present, and future, quite apropos of the idea of fate. However, it's important to note that there are exactly zero sources that ever imply something like a single Norn being relegated to or controlling only the past, or only the present, or only the future. Also, Karen beck Pedersen would caution us not to get too carried away because, as she notes, this information only occurs in Voluspa and Snorri's account, which seems to be entirely based on Voluspa. So we can't really say how widespread this idea really was, or even if it might have been invented by the composer of Voluspa. The link between Urdur and past, as she says, is only speculative and can't be proven. If you're a fan of Arthurian legend, you might also be getting some pretty strong Lady of the Lake vibes from the description of the Norns that I've given so far. Sadly, I haven't yet been able to find any scholarship that would directly tie the Arthurian Lady of the Lake back to the Norns. But fear not, I do have something for the Anglophiles out there. I mentioned that the word Urther means fate, and that it has cognates across the Germanic language spectrum. In other words, there are similar words in lots of related languages that all mean something pretty close to the same thing because they share a common origin, in this case, in the Proto-Germanic language. Whereas the Proto-Germanic word Wurthes evolved into Urther in Old Norse, it also evolved into the English word Weird. A long time ago, this word was spelled W-Y-R-D, and it actually meant fate. With that in mind, let's talk about a Scotsman named Hector Boes. In the early 1500s, Boes wrote a book called The History and Chronicles of Scotland, in which he described the deeds of a man you might have heard of from the 11th century named Macbeth. In 1587, an Englishman named Raphael Hollinshed used Boese's work to inform his own history book, simply called Chronicles. William Shakespeare ended up reading Hollinshed's Chronicles and used it to inform a lot of his plays, and it's where he got his inspiration for Macbeth in particular. The story as it's laid out in Chronicles picks up near the end of the Viking Age, just after the Danes have signed a treaty with the Scots, wherein they agreed to stop invading Scotland. I've massaged the word order just a little bit in one or two places for clarity in modern English, but at this point, the chroniclers tell us, quote, Shortly after happened a strange and uncouth wonder, which afterward was the cause of much trouble in the realm of Scotland, as ye shall after hear. It fortuned, as Macbeth and Banquo journeyed toward Fores, where the king then lay, they were sporting by the way together, without any other company, save only themselves, passing through the woods and fields, when suddenly, in the middle of a lond, there met them three women in strange and wild apparel, resembling creatures of elder world, whom, when they attentively beheld, wondering much at the sight, the first of them spake, and said, All hail Macbeth, Thane of Glamis, 
for he had lately entered into that dignity and office by the death of his father Sinel. The second of them said, Hail Macbeth, Thane of Cawder. But the third said, All hail Macbeth, that hereafter shalt be king of Scotland. Then Banquo said, What manner of women are you that seem so little favorable to me, whereas to my fellow here, besides high offices, ye assign also the kingdom, appointing forth nothing for me at all? Yes, saith the first of them, we promise greater benefits unto thee than unto him, for he shall reign indeed, but with an unlucky end, neither shall he leave any issue behind him to succeed in his place, where contrarily thou indeed shalt not reign at all, but of thee those shall be born which shall govern the Scottish kingdom by long order of continual descent. Herewith the aforesaid women vanished immediately out of their sight. This was reputed at first but some vain fantastical illusion by Macbeth and Banquo, insomuch that Banquo would call Macbeth in jest king of Scotland, and Macbeth again would call him in sport likewise the father of many kings. But afterwards, the common opinion was held that these women were either the weird sisters, that is, as ye would say, the goddesses of destiny, or else some nymphs or fairies endued with knowledge of prophecy by their necromantical science, because everything came to pass as they had spoken." End quote. By the time this story gets adapted for Shakespeare's Macbeth, the word weird has essentially fallen out of use in the English language outside the Scots dialect. But Shakespeare revives it for his play and applies it to his three strange witches, and as a result, the word has now come to mean strange in modern English. But when Boise originally wrote about Macbeth's encounter with the Weird Sisters, he understood the word to mean fate, and was very clearly referencing an older English tradition that corresponded with the Norns of Norse mythology. As I keep saying, Norse mythology is just Germanic mythology, and Germanic mythology is bigger than Vikings and Scandinavia. But let's get back to Scandinavia for now, and more specifically to Iceland, where our Eddas come from. Voluspa tells us that the Norns carved the fates of humans on a wooden board. In Old Norse, the phrase is skoru a skidi. Because this phrase is used for poetic alliteration, it's possible that the wooden board mentioned here is one of those close enough words that we see used in poetry sometimes that may actually be meant in this case as a reference to Yggdrasil itself. In terms of what's being carved, Lindau thinks it can't be runes because the verb for carving runes is almost always rista, not skera, from which we get skoru. He also thinks it can't be calendar staves, which were special marks for datekeeping, because we should have expected the verb skora instead of skera in that context. His best guess is they are actually carving complex pictures, essentially scenes of events that will play out in people's lives. Personally, I don't know whether or not Lindau is overanalyzing in order to arrive at that conclusion, but I will say it makes for an enticing visual of an enormous tree trunk just covered in elaborate pictorial scenes of heroic moments and glorious deaths, battles won and lost, and maybe even some mundane stuff in between. Whether those carvings just get covered up by the mud that the Norns put on the tree every day, though, I couldn't say. Regardless of how it gets carved, fate is extremely important in the Norse worldview. In Voluspa, when the gods first discover driftwood washed up on a beach before they end up turning it into the very first humans, the way the poet explains that the wood isn't alive is by describing it as fateless. The implication is that in order to be alive, one must have an affixed fate. And interestingly, reference to fate in poetry are also very often synonymous with the moment of a person's death. Lindau notes that the medieval Norse concept of fate is not exactly the same as modern conceptions. Though certain moments and events may be set in stone, 
it appears that not every little detail is deterministically planned out. Warriors fight battles to win, even though they might be fated to lose. People employ magical charms for protection and healing, even if they are already sick and might be headed towards death. In the case of heroes from the Eddas and Sagas, Lindau says that, quote, Fate appoints the when of one's demise, but one has control over the how, and if one dies properly in battle, one wins honor. But since one could not know which was to be one's last day, one presumably had to behave honorably at all times, end quote. So the idea seems to be that fate doesn't take all agency away from you. You're still left with some responsibility for the actions that you choose. It's also important to note that fate does sometimes appoint the how of one's death, such as in the cases of some of the gods and the ways that they are fated to die at Ragnarok. A good example of how fate is to be treated by literary role models comes from the poem Gripispo, where the hero Sigurdr visits his uncle Gripir, who has the magical ability to see all fates in advance, and asks him to spell out all the things that are going to happen to him. Gripir starts by telling Sigurdr about all the heroic things he's going to do, for instance, slaying a dragon and then rescuing a prince's daughter who has been put into a magical sleep. And if that reminds you of the story of Sleeping Beauty, that's not a coincidence. But Gripir is hesitant to tell Sigurdr about anything bad that will befall him. Sigurdr wants to know everything, though, so eventually his uncle relents and lays out a series of tragic events to come, including Sigurdr's own death. After this, the final stanza concludes with Sigurdr saying essentially, well, you can't win against fate. The phrase he uses specifically is, Munat skolpum winna. After this poem concludes, other poems describe how Sigurdr goes on to live out every event his uncle prophesied exactly as it was foretold, including his own death. Because an honorable Germanic hero doesn't fight or run from fate, he rises to meet it. In the last episode, we talked about an old English poem called Dream of the Rude, where Jesus is briefly portrayed in exactly this way. He isn't forced onto the cross by his captors, he rushes toward the cross and climbs it himself. Because any Germanic man worthy of admiration isn't going to be dragged helplessly to his fate, he's going to bravely and enthusiastically choose to meet it if he has the chance. The overarching narrative in Voluspa is that the god Odin is being told about his own fate in much the same way Sigurdr learns his fate by prophecy in Gripispa. Specifically, he's told that his fate is to be eaten by a monstrous wolf while fighting against the Jotnar at the final world-ending battle at Ragnarok. But people have often wondered, if Odin knows he's going to die in this battle, why does he amass an army of dead warriors to fight alongside him? And What's his motivation for constantly acquiring knowledge, if not to try and find some way to prevent this fate? Jackson Crawford often speculates that Odin may be trying to forestall Ragnarok as long as possible. And I've had a lot of personal theories like this myself in the past. But I think within this kind of speculation, we might be missing the Occam's razor explanation for Odin's behavior, which is that honorable Germanic heroes enthusiastically rise to meet their fates head on. If Odin is fated to die in battle, then the honorable and admirable thing to do is to go out fighting the biggest, most epic battle anyone's ever seen. Because you can't win against fate. Munat skopum winna. Trying to do so would be cowardly, and cowardice is unacceptable in Norse society. This, of course, is a lot of talk about how fate plays into the lives and mindset of Norse men. But what about Norse women? Well, we can pretty confidently say that fate must have been just as real for women as it was for men, 
After all, it was both Ash and Embla who were found on a beach by Odin and his companions lacking in fate before being made human. But we do unfortunately have a pretty male-centric body of literature to work from that sometimes leaves us lacking in knowledge of the nuanced differences between how some of these concepts affected the lives of men versus women. But I think it's important to call out that even though Norse men are typically the ones found accomplishing heroic deeds, and even though it's the men who make for the strongest and highest status gods, there's not a single one of them who will ever be strong enough to circumvent what those mysterious maidens decreed for their lives at the moment they were born. So I'll let you tell me who you think the most powerful beings in Norse mythology really are. I'll tell you one thing. And on that note, I hope it's your fate to join me again next time when we'll take yet another hefty gulp out of the well of knowledge together on Norse Mythology, The Unofficial Guide. Sources for this episode include Chronicles, Volume 2 by Raphael Hollenshed, 1587, Dictionary of Northern Mythology by Rudolf Zemeck, 2010, Fate by John Lindau in Pre-Christian Religions of the North, Volume 2, 2020, and in that same book, Norns by Karin Beck Pedersen. The History and Chronicles of Scotland, Volume 2 by Hector Boes, translated by John Bellenden, early 1500s. The Poetic Edda, translated by Caroline Larrington, 2014. And the Prose Edda, translated by Anthony Falks, 1995.